Welcome to session seven of the life of Christ. We're glad you're here. Thank you for braving the weather. Let's get started in prayer, shall we? Our great God and our Father, we love you, and we thank you for the opportunity to study the life of your Son, and we pray that as we come into these great events tonight, events that are familiar and yet need to get depth to them in our own lives, that you would teach us, that your Holy Spirit would change us so that we might be more like Jesus, for we pray in his name, and all the people said, amen. We are studying the life of Christ, and the life of Christ takes place in the land of Israel. If you were with us last time, you learned that the life of Christ, who lived in the land of Israel, was formed by the boundaries, this land of Israel, by four bodies of water. And we laid them down on the floor of the church. We said, up here is the Sea of what? Galilee. Flowing out of the Sea of Galilee is the what? Jordan River, and it empties into the what? Dead Sea. Where'd my Dead Sea go? Oh, there he is. He's good. Okay. Now, outside uh, that wall, going all the way to the west, is the what? Mediterranean. And that leaves this strip of seats right here is the land of what? Israel, or Palestine, or Canaan, or the Promised Land. We're going to call it Israel, because it was called Israel at the time of Christ. Now, I didn't teach you this last time we were together, but at the time of Jesus, the land of Israel is divided into sections. This northern section is right next to the Sea of... And it takes its name from the Sea of... And the name of this northern third is Galilee. And then in the south, goes all the way back to the Old Testament tribe of Judah. And by the time of Jesus, it was called Judea. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's the southern third. So there's an area in the north called Galilee. There's an area in the south called Judea. And then there's Samaria in the middle called Samaria. And we're going to see tonight who the Samaritans are. And it was very interesting that Jesus actually goes through Samaria. Most Jewish people did not. The only other area I want you to learn is opposite the Dead Sea. Right up here about 1 o'clock on the Dead Sea is a place called Perea. Say that. Perea is where Jesus could go to escape the authority of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. So we have four bodies of water. Ready? Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea over there is the what? Mediterranean forming the land of Israel. And four areas in the land of Israel. We have Galilee in the middle, Samaria in the south, Judea, and opposite the Dead Sea is how do you spell that? P-E-R-E-A. Then last time when we were together, we said Jesus was born in the little town down here called what? Bethlehem. We said Bethlehem, and we held a baby birth. At the age of two, Jesus had to flee to the land of what? Egypt. That's on the exit by the door, and we say Egypt, flight. Say that with me, Egypt, flight. And then when Herod died, Jesus was safe to come home to Nazareth, where he was a carpenter from what we're able to tell. He stayed in Nazareth until he was about 30, and then he started his ministry. We saw last week in the what? Jordan River, where he is baptized by John. He is then led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Any way you go from the Jordan River Valley is wilderness. And so although we're not sure exactly where, we're just going to say wilderness generally. And Jesus was what? Tempted by Satan. Then last week we got together and did three firsts. He stays down here, goes out into Perea, and he calls his first followers, first followers, later they'll be part of the the 12 disciples. He takes them to a wedding feast in the city of what? Cana, and he does his first miracle. What is the first miracle? Water into wine. And then he goes down to Jerusalem, where last last thing we did was the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? First cleansing. Say, Jerusalem, first cleansing. Tonight we're going to see a second. We're going to see in Jerusalem, after the first cleansing, he tells a guy about the second birth. Okay, so we're going to say Jerusalem first cleansing, second birth. 
and then he goes north right through Sychar. Would you be Sychar for me? Perfect. Okay. What's your real name? Sandy. Sandy. Well, there was, uh, Jesus had a meeting in the city of Sychar with a woman whose name was Sandy. No, her, we don't know her name. Her name was the woman at the well. Okay. And we're going to get to that in our session tonight. You with me? Let's do the whole thing. Stand up with me. Put your notes down. See if we can do this in unison. If you're listening on the audio, take the map out of the manual and point to these places, starting with the Sea of Galilee. Go. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, Mediterranean, form the land of Israel. Has four parts. Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and Perea. Very good. Jesus' life starts in the city of Bethlehem, we call it the birth, down to Egypt for the flight, home to Nazareth. He becomes a carpenter into the Jordan River where he is baptized by John, out into the wilderness where he is what? Tempted by Satan. Three first. Out into Perea, he calls his first followers, takes them to the wedding at Cana. He does his first miracle. Then down to Jerusalem for the first cleansing. Tonight we're going to tell, talk about Nicodemus and the second birth, and we're going to come up through Sychar where he meets the woman at the well. What was her name? Sandy. No, we don't know what it is. Good. Have a seat. Great job. Turn, please, in your harmonies to paragraph 32. I believe it's page 18. And that map will be very handy if, if you want to keep that with you later uh, in, in the evening. We'll, we'll get back to it a little bit. Jesus has cleansed the temple in John chapter 2. And it created quite a stir because in cleansing the temple, Jesus is showing his authority to do that. If you think about it, in the Jewish world, okay, who was in charge of the temple? Well, the high priest. Only one person in all of Israel would have greater authority than the high priest. Who must that be? Had to be God. So when Jesus is cleansing the temple, he's actually claiming to be God, the King, the Messiah of Israel. And so that creates quite a stir. Uh, and in John chapter uh, 2, at the end of the passage, we read in paragraph 32, John 2:23. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. And there's that motif in John's gospel. Remember, John is writing to the whole world to show that if you believe that Jesus does these signs, you'll come to have eternal life. And so that's going well here. Jesus is doing miracles. He's cleansing the temple. But, the next verse says, but... Verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all literally men there. I understand the need for political correctness, but the word in the text is men. And then it says he did not need to testify about man, for he knew what was in a man. And then unfortunately there's a chapter break in our Bible that is a bad one. Some of them are just poorly put, and this is one. Because chapter 3, verse 1 starts... Now there was a certain man. So all this man, man, man fits together. And what we're going to see is men are interested in the miraculous, but there's something more important than the miraculous. And so Jesus is going to meet a very important man. He's a Pharisee. He's the first Irish man in the Bible. His name is Nick Odemus. I like that. I used to work with junior high kids. He was named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And we know from last week that's called the what? The Sanhedrin. So this is a big deal guy in Israel. He's like a senator with religious overtones. He came to Jesus when? 
at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus finds Jesus at the Passover. It's crowded. The temple's been cleansed. Nicodemus takes the initiative to find Jesus, but he comes at night. Now the question is, why did he come at night? And some people think he was afraid to come during the day. My own opinion is it took great courage to come at night, especially during the Passover. First of all, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have had work to do during the day. This was their busy time. And secondly, at night, walking around the streets of Jerusalem, you might step in some of the stuff we talked about that sheep leave behind. Sheep dip, the technical word. And if you step in sheep dip, you are unclean and cannot celebrate the Passover. Whatever the case, I think we'll get to ask Nicodemus that in heaven because ultimately he comes to faith in Christ, but at this point he doesn't have faith in Christ. And he says, he's schmoozing him up, isn't he? He's a politician. We know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do what you're doing unless God's with him. And Jesus stops him in his tracks. In verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth, unless a person is what? Born from above? Or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again, doesn't he? No, I need you to underline this. Nicodemus never asks, how can a man be born again? He asks, how can a man be born when he's what? Old. He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? See, Nicodemus knew many ways of being born again. In the Jewish world, there were at least six different ways that I've been able to uncover where it was said of a person that they were born again. And the idea of being born again always implies with it a change in relationship. The first way a person could be born again did not apply to Nicodemus. But it was said of a Gentile when they converted to Judaism that they were born again. Because after converting to Judaism, they have a new relationship with the nation of Israel. And that is not the case in Nicodemus' life. He's probably born a Jew and lived a Jew, but so that doesn't really apply to him. The second also does not apply to Nicodemus, but when a prince is enthroned as king, installed as king after the coronation, it is said of the king, he is born again. He has a new relationship with the people that he rules over. Before his coronation, he is a prince now. He's the ruler and king. But the other four ways of being born again all apply to Nicodemus, as best as I can tell. Up on the chart we see, first of all, when a boy turned 13, what happens to him in Israel? He gets bar mitzvahed. It's said of that boy, after the bar mitzvah, that he's now a man. And what has changed is his relationship. He goes from being a child to being a peer as a male. He's born again into a new relationship within his family. Nicodemus, being a Jew, would have been bar mitzvahed. He also was probably married. To sit on the Sanhedrin meant that you were in all likelihood married. And it was said of a fiancé that when he got married, unlike our culture where we say he's a dead man, it was said he's born again because he has a new relationship with his spouse. Before the marriage, he's just a fiancé. After the marriage, he's a husband. And then Nicodemus was a rabbi. We know that because he was on the Sanhedrin, and we're actually going to see in one of the verses he not only was a rabbi, but he taught at a rabbinical school. And to be ordained as a rabbi okay, took place somewhere in your late 20s, early 30s, and you would be said to have been born again. You go from being a layperson 
to being a clergy person or a rabbi person. Okay? And then the last way we know Nicodemus would have been born again is down in verse 9. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? The teacher in Hebrew is a title. It's the word harab. Ha, the teacher, rab. Harab was the head of rabbinical school. Nicodemus is not asking how can a man be born again because he knows these ways. He's gone from being a rabbi to being the dean of a rabbinical school. But Nicodemus asks the question, how can a man be born when he is what? Old. He cannot enter his mother's womb and be born a second time. Jesus, verse 5, says, I tell you the solemn truth, which again in the text is truly, truly I say to you, Unless a person is born of two things, water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Uh, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. Now, I have found in my studies at least seven different interpretations of this passage. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Some people think to be born of water is, uh, is uh, baptism. You have to be, come to faith spiritually, and then you have to be baptized with the water. Some people think that the water is the washing of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 3, we have that phrase. And so you have to be born uh, by faith, and then the Spirit comes in and does something miraculous. And although that is true, I think that Jesus in the text tells us what water and the Spirit is. In chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think what Jesus is saying is you've got to be born physically, born of the flesh, as well as spiritually, born of the Spirit, to go to heaven. To put it succinctly, if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once. If you're only born physically, you're going to die physically and you're going to die spiritually. But if you're born physically and spiritually, you're going to only die once physically. You're going to have a new birth experience. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. He says, verse 7, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You've got to have physical birth, and you've got to have spiritual birth. And again, in the rabbinical world, to be born of water meant you pass through the waters of the birth canal. So it was a rabbinical term. To be born of water and the Spirit was to be born physically and spiritually. Nicodemus is scratching his little old head, and Jesus says, you don't get this? It's kind of like the wind. Well, we don't really understand the wind either, but we understand the effects of the wind, don't we? I remember when we took our son Zach to Texas when he was a boy. We stayed with friends in North Dallas, and North Dallas was carved out of cotton fields. It was flat and there's nothing between North Dallas and the Canadian border except barbed wire. And the wind does come howling down the plains. There's always wind in Dallas. And my little son at the age of six or seven said, Mommy, how can there be wind in Texas when there are no trees? See, Zach thought, stupid child that he was, that the trees moved and that made like a fan. Now, he had an idea. He was close, but he wasn't quite right. The wind makes the trees move. And that's how it is with the spiritual birth. I can't give you all the facts as to how it happens. I can just see the results. 
I can get up and talk about Christ and give the gospel, and some people believe and some people don't believe. I can't make anybody believe. But the ones who really believe, I can see it happen in their lives. And that's how it is with the spiritual birth. But Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And then Jesus gives it to him. Are you harab? And yet you don't understand these things? Let me give you two passages. You can study these on your own. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27, and Isaiah 44, 3, are two places in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have been familiar with where it talks about being born physically and being born spiritually, the water and the spirit. And it's a reference to the nation Israel who are in captivity at the end of the Old Testament, and they are dead. And God promises to raise them up physically and then to raise them up spiritually, and they're going to be born of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus, Jesus says, you should have known this. Verse 11, I tell you the truth, again, truly, truly, we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. Again, I think the hour there might refer to the Trinity. I'm not sure, but I think so. If I told you people about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then verse 14 is one of the weirder verses in all of the New Testament. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have what? Eternal life. Now, I'm not sure if John is editorializing here or these are actually the quoted words of Jesus, but... It's kind of a weird passage. I hope you've memorized the book of Numbers, but if you haven't, jot down in your margin, Numbers 21. Down around verse 9, the people of Israel are in big trouble. They're disobeying God, and so God has sent to them a plague of snakes. And the snakes are crawling all around and biting the Jews, and the Jews are dying. And it's because of their sinfulness. So they go to Moses, and they say, Moses... Can't you do something about this? And so Moses goes to God, and God says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Cast a serpent out of bronze, stick it up on a pole, and whoever looks at the serpent on the pole in faith will be healed of their fatal wound. That's pretty weird. You know, one of the reasons I think the Bible's true is because you wouldn't make this up. If you did, no one would believe it. But here it is in the most famous passage in the Bible, John 3. Everybody knows about being born again, or at least they've heard about it. And just as in the Old Testament they had to look in faith to God's provision for their sin to be forgiven, so too in the New Testament we have to look in faith to God's provision for our sin, Jesus. That serpent lifted up in the wilderness is a type or a picture of Christ. And let's be honest, it's pretty stupid when you think about it to think that a Jewish carpenter who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago would pay for my sin. And the world says, that is really dumb. And the world is, from their standpoint, right. But that's the way it is. I don't understand everything about the spiritual birth. I just know that it is. I don't know why a brown cow can eat green grass and give white milk, but it happens. Verse 16, everybody knows. You see... I love the Numbers passage, but it leads us to verse 16. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so Jesus is, in this setting, given us the definition of what does it take to have the new birth. It takes believing. And believing involves God's part coming together with man's part. 
and I'll quote it from a more familiar translation, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's God's part, that whosoever believes in him, that's man's part, will not perish but have eternal life. How do you get born again? You believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You believe God's part. He sent Jesus to die for you. And then you take an active step of faith in that, and you live on the basis of that. That's our part. When God's part and our part come together, the promise is what? Eternal life. It's a pretty good promise. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And that's why the new birth is necessary. The new birth is necessary because we're born dead. I hope you can think back to the time when you did not know Christ. I remember growing up without Christ. I remember trying to pray and it was as though the the prayers bounced off the ceiling. But there came a point in time in my life when I believed. I made an active effort I said, I'm going all in here. And things changed dramatically in my life because I had this new spiritual birth that was very, very real. Verse 19, now this is the basis for judging that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Again, John is writing this and he's got the light and dark, the belief and the non-belief working here as a motif. For everyone who does evil deeds hates the light and does not come to the light so that their deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He does the first cleansing and then tells Nicodemus about the second birth. You with me? Big event. Big event. Now back to back with this event is another big event. Because what they teach you in seminary is that John 3 comes right before chapter 4. There's a little hinge event here in the next paragraph, kind of a cute little rascal, paragraph 33, verse verse 22 of the John account. After this, Jesus and his disciples came into Judean territory, and there he spent time with them and was baptizing. So now Jesus has moved back into Uh, out of the city of Jerusalem, and he's in this Judean territory. We know from other passages he's in Bethany beyond the Jordan. He's down here along the Dead Sea area. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. People were coming to him and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown in prison. That's a parenthesis, and again, whatever happens to John is going to happen to who? Jesus later on. Verse 25, a dispute came about between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew Uh, and a certain Jew concerning ceremonial washing. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan about whom you testified, see he is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John replied, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but rather I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This then is my joy and it is complete. Underline this. He must become more important while I become what? Less important. John says, look, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the best man. And at a Jewish wedding, after the betrothal, the groom would go and steal away his bride in the dark of night. He would take the bride to the home of his father 
and they would begin a party. But the party really didn't get going until the husband and wife, newly married, would consummate the wedding, they would consummate the union, and outside the door of the bridal chamber built by the husband would wait the best man. Think about that. Ladies, how great would that be? Your husband's buddy is outside the door. And then finally, some note would be passed at the door, and the best man would say, Yoo-hoo! We have a new marriage. And it was the joy of the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, to announce the new marriage. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is superior to all. The one who is from earth belongs to earth and speaks about earthly things. And again, he's talking about himself versus Jesus. The one who comes from heaven is superior to all. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony and has confirmed clearly that God is truthful for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give his spirit sparingly. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things under his authority. The one who believes in the Son has, what? Eternal life. The one who rejects the Son will not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. Now with that, Jesus, next paragraph 34, withdraws from Judea. Chapter 4 of the John Gospel says, Now when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was winning and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing but his disciples were, he left Judea and set out once more for what? Galilee. Now, and why is that? Because Jesus grew up in Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth. He'd just been to a wedding in Cana. He had six brothers and sisters at least in Nazareth. Mother Mary lives in Nazareth. And he's now getting ready to go north. But the scripture is very, very important. Don't miss this. Verse 4 of the John account. But he had to pass through Samaria. Here's Samaria. At the time of Jesus, no good Orthodox Jew would go through Samaria. It made you unclean. Why is that? Because they hated each other. How did that happen? Well, between the Old and New Testament, there was a group of people called the Samarians. Samaritans evolved. At the end of the Old Testament, the northern tribes of Israel, there were ten tribes up here, they got kicked out of the land and invaded by the Assyrians. Say Assyrians. Remember, Jonah was told, arise, go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of, the, of, of Assyria. And the Assyrians were brutal conquerors, and they came in and occupied the land and brought with them other people they had conquered, and they began to intermarry with the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes are called the Lost Tribes because they never again regathered in this land. But many stay behind, and they have a Jewish history and a Jewish heritage, and then after the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are taken over here to Babylon, they get brought back in mass, and they're about to reconstruct the Jewish way of life. So at the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jewish people are going to build a new temple, because their temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Badea, 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 Badea Babylonians. So from about 586 till about 480 or so, there's no temple in Israel. So this work crew comes back full of Jewish people from Judah. That's where the Jews come from. They're from Judah. Okay? And they start work on the temple. And the Assyrians show up and say, here we are, we're here to help. These Assyrian Samaritans and the Jewish leadership says, ain't no way that's happening. Because you're of mixed race and the Messiah has to come and the Messiah cannot be 
anything other than a descendant of Abraham, so you're not going to be allowed to build our temple. So the Samaritans were kind of funny about that. They decided, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build our own temple. So they got a work crew together, and they constructed a temple right up here in Mount Gerizim, near Sychar. We're going to go there in a minute. And they had a false temple. They took the Old Testament books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and every time it said, build the temple and Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, guess what they did? They took whiteout. Do you remember whiteout? They erased it, and they wrote in Mount Gerizim. So there was this several hundred-year-old battle, which is the right temple. They had a clean food and an unclean food. They had a messianic hope. They expected a Messiah to come. They also would do nasty things because the Jews on their way to and from Jerusalem for their feast would use smoke signals. And the Samaritans would intercept and discombobulate the smoke signals. So they hated each other. Jesus had to go there because I had a meeting with a woman. The Jews had a prayer. It's in the Talmud. You can find it. It says, O Lord, may my eyes never behold a Samaritan. They had another prayer that said, I thank you, O God, that I am not a Gentile or a Samaritan or a woman. You can take that up with them. But Jesus came to the Samaritan town called what? Sychar. And he meets the woman at the well, and her name is Sandy. He came to the Samaritan town, paragraph 35, John 4, 5. Near the plot of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat right down beside the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw, and Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink, for his disciples had gone off into the town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, I don't think she's happy here, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink, for Jews have nothing in common with Samaritans? I love this woman, by the way. Jesus answered and said to her, If you had known the gift of God and who it is who said to you, Give me some water to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Living water. Now think about this for a minute. We know because we've read the rest of the passage that this woman is, shall we say, loose. She has slept around. She has lived with four husbands. She's living with a guy now who's not her husband. I'm sure when she gets to the well, she's wearing fishnet stockings underneath her robe, a lot of makeup. And I think when, when Jesus says, give me a drink, I'm thinking what's going through her mind is what? I've heard this line before. It's usually, let me buy you a drink. And I think that she is uh, going to go one-on-one with him, toe-to-toe with him. <coughs> How is it that you, a Jew, want a drink from me? Well, if you knew who was offering, you'd ask, and I'd give you a drink. <laughs> <clears throat> Verse 11, sir, she said, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself along with his sons and livestock. Jesus replied, everyone who drinks of this water, verse 13, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks some of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again, but the water I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, what? Sir, give me this water. Now, how do you think she said that? Give me this water, buddy. Who do you think you are? That's what I'm thinking. There's just sarcasm all over this. Maybe this is just me, but so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
He said to her, go call your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I have no husband, which means what? You can talk. These are earthy people. I'm not married. You, you know, the coast is clear. You can come back to my place. That's what I'm thinking. And then he says, oh boy. You're right. When you, right you are when you said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. I was wrong, five. And the man you are living with now is not your husband. This you said truthfully. Tell me about a woman who has five husbands. Class, she what? She gets a lot of alimony? Not in that world. Don sounds like a bitter divorced man, doesn't he? What else? She's looking for a six, perhaps, but she's got a guy. What's a woman like who's gone through five husbands? I think she's, she's eager, anxious, dying to have somebody what? Love her. And Jesus puts his finger on the very sorest spot of her life. And immediately she wants to change the subject, as would I. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. You've checked me out. You know all about me. I'm going to check you out. So she asks him the, the question of the day. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain at our temple. You people say that the place we must worship is Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then Jesus gives to her, in my opinion, one of the most significant theological truths of the entire New Testament. God is what? Spirit. And those and the people who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not important where you worship. It's important how you worship. You worship in spirit, but you worship in truth. Question, can you have a spiritual experience that is not a truthful experience? Shake your head, yes. I think of the cults. I think of the false religions of the world. Deeply spiritual people, to their credit, but they're not worshiping in truth. How do we worship in truth? Well, Jesus, later in John's Gospel, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So to have a true worship experience, you've got to focus it in the person of Christ. Otherwise, you're just having a spiritual experience. Jesus doesn't say, you false Samaritan pagan, you're going to hell, does he? He says, hey, God is spirit. And to worship him, you've got to worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will tell us everything which temple to worship in included. And Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am what? Oh, my. Now, listen. Far as I can find in the Scriptures, this is the only person that Jesus tells who he is on the first day in the first conversation that he meets him. Everybody else has to wait a while and figure it out some. There are only two people in the New Testament that hear from Jesus' own lips, I'm the Messiah. She's one of them, so I think she's incredibly blessed. Jesus loves her enough to go the extra mile 
to take this journey and meet with her at the well and engage her where she is. And she comes to faith. At that very moment, the disciples came back and they were shocked because he was speaking with a woman, a Samaritan woman. However, no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? When the woman left her water jar, went off into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Surely he can't be the Messiah, can he? So watch, underline this. They left the town and began coming to him. Why is that? Why would you close down shop in the middle of a workday and go to a well in the middle of nowhere at the heat of noon to find a Jewish guy? Because, I'm guessing, they don't want anybody wandering around Sychar saying everything this woman's ever done. <laughs> Thank you. Now we got your mind down in the gutter. Meanwhile, the disciples are saying, Rabbi, eat, because they're worried about him eating some unclean Samaritan food. Verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and complete his work. Do you not say there are four more months and then comes the harvest? I tell you, look up and see the fields. They're already white for the harvest. I'm thinking as the people come out of town, you've got these Samaritans with their white turbans on representing ripe wheat buds. For instance, verse 32, verse 37, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not work for. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans in that town believe there's a word in him. Same word as in chapter 3. Because of the report of the woman who testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they began asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And because of his word, many more believed. They said to the woman, no longer do we believe because of your words, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one really is the what? Savior of the world. Now let me have you connect these and we'll be finished. How is Jesus referred to in verse 11? Sir. How is Jesus referred to in verse 19? I see that you are a prophet. Put a circle around this. How is Jesus referred to in verse 29? The Messiah, maybe. How is Jesus referred to in verse 42? The Savior of the world. Now the cool thing is this. Jesus exists for both people at both ends of the spectrum in John, in, in John 3 and in John 4. What are the differences between these two people? Well, Nicodemus is a man. This is a woman. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. This is maybe a prostitute. Nicodemus is highly trained. He's the leader of a rabbinical school. This is a woman who knows very little except the Messiah is coming. And yet Jesus comes for them both, and he ministers at the area of their need. With, the, with, with Nicodemus, he's more confrontational. With the woman, he's much more gentle, isn't he? Isn't that great about Jesus? Father, thank you for these two incredible folks. I look forward to being in heaven with each of them and asking what was it like to meet Jesus on that first day. Thank you that you have come for us. You have died for us so that we can know you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that whether we're male or female or old or young or rich or poor or religious or not, you would make yourself real to us through the life of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.